It is uh, good to be together with you this morning, especially as you may be aware, this last uh, few weeks, my wife and I, we had to isolate ourselves. My daughter and I had to isolate ourselves because of the proximity we came into with someone with the COVID virus. So it is so good uh, to be back together in this particular way. It was also really good to be on the other end of the camera, so to speak, to be at home and um, viewing much the same way that many of you are. So uh, I feel like I learned a lot. I enjoyed that particular process. I, I love seeing your little comments uh, that people were making of where they're watching from and uh, things that the Lord was impressing on your heart. And so uh, it is good. I'm grateful for uh, Will and for Kevin uh, for the time that they took, sort of pressed into service without a lot of prep time uh, to prepare messages for us, and, and we were blessed by that. I was certainly blessed by that. But it is good to be back together. Uh, for the last bunch of weeks, we had been talking about uh, moving right into the book of Jonah, and then we just kept pushing that back one week after the next after the next. And so that is our plan. Today we are going to continue our study of the minor prophets uh, by moving into uh, the next Minor Prophet book. So if you would please begin the process of locating the book of Jonah in your Bibles. And as you do that, let me pray for us. Father, we are uh, grateful for the Word of God. We're grateful to be together. Lord, we thank you for uh, watching over and protecting us, uh, particularly uh, my family from not getting uh, the virus and uh, being healthy through the process. And uh, Lord, we look forward to what you have for us in your Word. And so, Father, thank you for preserving it for us, delivering it to us, that we might be able to look into it and to consider it and to have you speak to our hearts from it. And we pray you would do that exact thing once more uh, today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you uh, have found the book of Jonah, perhaps you've, you've flipped right past the book of Obadiah as well. So you, you, you recall, we've been making our way through, we've been looking at some of these minor prophets, Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah and some of the others that we've already considered. And when we did the book of Obadiah, that little one chapter, 21 verse book in our minor prophets, we took notice of the fact that Obadiah was a unique book. And it was unique because it was one of the few prophet, prophetic books that was addressed to uh, a foreign nation. It wasn't addressed to Israel. It wasn't addressed to Judah but it was addressed to the foreign nation of Edom. And that, that kind of sets it apart as sort of a unique book. Well, the book of Jonah is also a unique book among the minor prophets. And the reason why it is in this instance is because it is a book that so little of the book is actually the prophetic message that God gave to this prophet, who we'll learn his name was Jonah. So, much, so little of it is about that prophetic message. And in reality, so much of the book is actually about Jonah himself, the prophet himself. There's actually only eight words in the English language recorded in the book that God gave Jonah to speak. And if this were Hebrew and we were able to read the Hebrew language, that would be reduced to actually five words. And so, so much of the book is concerned not with the message of the prophet, but with the prophet himself. Now, of all the books of the minor prophets, the book of Jonah may be the most well-known of those books. I think it's actually, you might say, one of the most familiar accounts or stories of the entire Old Testament is the, the account that's recorded for us in the book of Jonah. Sadly, however, I think the key idea of the book of Jonah 
even though a lot of people know about the book, I think the key idea is often missed in our study of the book of Jonah. Because oftentimes the central focus of the book comes down to what is going on inside of this big fish that is spoken of in the second chapter. But what I hope to point out, what I hope to take some time with, and what I believe God would have us take some time with in our study of the book of Jonah, is it's not so much what's going on inside of this big fish that is significant, but it's what's going on inside of Jonah who's inside of this big fish that becomes the most important thing for us to be considering in our study. Now, as you, there's four chapters to the book of Jonah. We'll probably take three weeks, maybe four weeks uh, in our study of the book. But there's a central theme that runs through every one of those chapters. So there's four distinct chapters, but a central theme that runs through them. And that's the theme of the mercy of God. As you read chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, every one of the chapters, as you take some time with it and consider it, you'll see there's this theme of the mercy of God. And so we will see the mercy of God to the city of Nineveh. We'll see the mercy of God to Jonah himself. There's even the mercy of God that is shown to a group of pagan sailors whose names we never even learn. And yet they too experience the mercy of God. And so that's a, the central theme. The main theme of the book of Jonah is the mercy of God. There's a second theme which works its way through the book of we as well, and that is the sovereignty of God. That God, uh, who in his sovereignty accomplishes his purposes uh, in his people for his glory. And that you'll see woven throughout the book as well. And we'll talk about it as we jump, jump into the book. By now, I, I imagine, I hope you've found your way to Jonah. Look at the first verse of chapter 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up against me. Well, we learn a few things. As we often do in the opening verses of the, the books of the Minor Prophets, we learn a number of key things. Number one, we learn who this uh, prophet is, what his name is. And you can see there, it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. So verse one names uh, who the prophet is that God is going to use. It's a fellow by the name of Jonah. It tells us uh, who his dad was, Amittai, and so on. Secondly, you'll notice in the verse, we learn the nature of his calling. And that is, as it says in verse 2, that he is to arise from where he was, go to Nineveh, it says that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And so you're going to see there's three things that we learn in these first few verses. Number one, who the author and the central character is, that's Jonah. Number two, what he is to do, he's to go to that great city of Nineveh, he's to call out against it, for their evil, and then we're going to even learn a third thing in a moment. Now, but before we jump in, let me just remind you a little bit about Nineveh. It's a name that kind of comes up in our conversations about the Bible as we're talking about other places, particularly in the Old Testament. The name Nineveh is oftentimes mentioned. Nineveh was the capital city of the rapidly expanding Assyrian Empire, and you recall during our study of the book of Amos that it was the Assyrians that had come down and attacked Israel's neighbor to its north, the nation of Syria. However, they did not continue to go all the way down into the area of Israel. But they were this burgeoning empire. They were growing around the 800s or so BC and into the 700s 
uh, as well BC. And Nineveh was their particular capital city. Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire, they would eventually build for themselves a reputation that continues to today as one of the most wicked and cruel empires that had ever existed. And the Lord says to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was a huge city in its day. Chapter 3, just uh, flip over if you will. Look at chapter 3. It says, so Jonah arose. He went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And it says, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, which was three days journey in breadth. The idea there is if you were going to walk through this particular city, let's just say you could walk 10 miles in a day. That means in width, in breadth, this city was 30 miles. It was huge. It was a huge city for that particular time. In that day, it was the largest city in the world. Ancient historians know a lot about Nineveh, much like they know a lot about the ancient city of Babylon, for instance. They know a lot about the ancient city of Nineveh. For instance, they have discovered the foundations of 1,200, 200-foot high towers, or what would have been believed to be 200-foot high towers, 1,200 of them scattered throughout this city. They have discovered that the city was surrounded by a 100-foot high wall whose foundation was made of polished stone or marble, if you will, that the stone was so wide that three chariots could drive side by side upon this particular wall, 100 foot high, um, and certainly as wide as it needs to be for three chariots to make their way up upon that particular wall. We also know from ancient history that Nineveh was completely built through the labor of the foreign slaves that they conquered in battle. So Nineveh was an awesome city. Even today, I think it would be considered an awesome city, but in that day, certainly it stood out amongst the towns and villages of the world. Now, in addition to being an awesome city, Nineveh was an awful city as well. Again, note in verse 2 that the Lord says, chapter 1, verse 2, that their evil has come up against me. And as I said a few moments ago, even to this day, historically, the Assyrians are known as some of the cruelest, most sadistic people in world history. There's evidence that the Assyrians constructed furniture, which was made out of the human skin of some of the people that they conquered. There's evidence that in the area where Nineveh was, that there were pyramids scattered throughout the city that were constructed of the human skulls of the various people that they defeated. We read in history that many cities, when they heard even a rumor that Assyria was headed their way, that those cities would hoist their white flag of surrender rather than engaging themselves against the vicious people of the Assyrian Empire. The minor prophet Nahum, who wrote about 100 or so years after Jonah, he describes the people of Nineveh, and this is what he says in Nahum chapter 3. He says, Woe to the bloody city that is all full of lies and plunders, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, the galloping horse and the bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of course, uh, corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies and all the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful of, and of deadly charms, who betray nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. 
you know, you, you see that there in verse 3. It talks about the heaps of corpses and the dead bodies that are without end. And so Assyria, Nineveh in particular, a wicked, evil place. And as it says in verse 2, their evil had come up before the Lord, if you will. It took, taken notice of it um, there. And that's who Jonah is called to go and prophesy to. Now, I said we learned a few things in the opening verses. Number one, we learn who it is, Jonah. Number two, we learn where he's to go, Nineveh, and the reason why, because their wickedness had come up before the Lord. The third thing we notice, not because it's written there for us, but simply through observation, and that is this, and we can kind of deduce this, is that despite the fact that Nineveh was a foreign people with their various foreign gods that they cried out to, not the Lord, none of that negates the fact that the Lord still looks upon them, looks upon their wickedness, and that he will hold them accountable for that wickedness. And so sometimes we think that God would be oblivious to these things because they're not you know, part of God's people or whatever it may be, but we know this from the scripture and we see it in this example that none of man's wickedness is hidden from the Lord that he takes all of these things, and just as Jesus would say in the New Testament, that nothing is concealed that will not be disclosed, and nothing is hidden that will not be made known. The writer of the book of Hebrews, he said it this way. He said, nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And what Jonah's message is going to be to the people of Nineveh is that it is time for them to get ready to give such an account. God is going to call them to an account for their sin. Now that, so that sounds pretty simple. Jonah is a prophet of God. We learn in the book of 2 Kings chapter 14, he's referred to as a prophet of God that was, was given messages from the Lord to deliver. And so we learn that, we see that. Here we have Jonah, he's a prophet of God, He's told now to go to a particular location and to deliver a particular message. Again, seems pretty straightforward. You would expect the next verse to say, and that's what Jonah did. And yet the book takes an interesting turn in verse 3. It goes a completely different direction, which obviously is going to change sort of the ending of the story or the storyline in and of itself. You'll notice in verse 3, Jonah chapter 1, verse 3, it says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, flee from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, which is a port city on the Mediterranean. He found a ship that was going to Tarshish, which was another port city on the other side of the Mediterranean. It says he paid the fare. He went down into the boat, the ship, to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. The Lord called Jonah said, I want you to go to Nineveh. Notice the first word of verse 3, but, it says. And that, that but should give us pause. Uh-oh, we should say to ourselves, what's going to happen now? Because even if you don't know where Tarshish is, the word but should cause you to pause for a moment uh, and consider. In addition, notice how it goes on from that. It says the reason that he went uh, to flee to Tarshish is because he was trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. And that's perhaps our biggest clue yet that Jonah has determined he's not going to do what the Lord commissioned him to do. 
Let me give you a little more details about Tarshish. Tarshish was located somewhere around the southern coast of what is today the nation of Spain. All right, and so you know that Spain is on kind of the western uh, edge of the Mediterranean Sea and the Atlantic Ocean there. Joppa, as mentioned there, today we refer to it as Haifa. Uh, it's a port city in Israel, which is on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. It is about uh, 1,500 or so uh, mile distance away to get over to that particular place. Nineveh was about 500 miles north of where Jonah lived. We learn in another place that Jonah lived in a place that was called Gath-Hefer, about 500 miles kind of north and inland of that is where Nineveh was located. Tarshish was located about 2,000 miles west of where Jonah lived. And so Jonah is clearly looking to go as far as possible in the opposite direction from the place that God is sending him. And not only that, you see, not only is he trying to get as far away from Nineveh as he can, but he's also trying to get away from the presence of the Lord as well. We see that there in verse 3. And Jonah, who we'll discover, as we get to chapter 2, we'll discover he was a man who knew the Psalms, the, the Hebrew Psalms, the writings of David and the others. Jonah forgets perhaps one of David's most well-known Psalms, Psalm 139, where David asked the questions, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there, he says. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're even there. If I take the, the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, which Tarshish would have been, even there your hand is going to lead me and your right hand is going to hold me. And then it says, you can't escape the presence of the Lord. Jonah forgot that. And so Jonah gets on this ship, he pays the fare, and he tries to flee from the presence of the Lord, forgetting that truth that where can we go from God's presence and how can we flee? So we have to ask ourselves then this question, why didn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Now, of course, you know, we can look at our own lives and we can make some, some guesses if God called us to go uh, to this city of Nineveh after, with all the things that I've described it from, uh, you know, we, we might have our reservations as well. For instance, maybe Jonah was simply overcome with the thought of the mission that was before him that you want me, one guy from, you know, some little village here in northern Israel to go to the largest city in the world and start a ministry or undertake some ministry. And maybe that Jonah was simply overwhelmed by the daunting nature of the task. And he said, you know, I, I'm just not down for that. I don't want to do that. Uh, and I think every one of us, we could look at that and we're like, yeah, I can understand that. I could see how he might come to that particular conclusion. The problem with that is nowhere in the book of Jonah does it, it say that it was the daunting nature of the task which uh, caused him to be disobedient to the Lord's commissioning. And so we might look at it and we say, well, maybe it wasn't the daunting nature of the task. Maybe it was the danger of the task. You got the Assyrian people that were known for these crazy things that they were doing to people and their, their cruelty and their um, brutal fashion. Again, I mentioned earlier how entire cities just hearing that Nineveh was thinking of coming out against them or the Assyrians were coming against them would give up. And so perhaps uh, it was the danger of the mission. But once more, the, the text, Jonah, the book, it doesn't mention anywhere in there that Jonah was afraid, afraid to go or, or something like that dissuaded him from obeying the commissioning of the Lord. 
there's one thing that the text does tell us, and we have to look a little bit forward um, to this. It's going to be to chapter 4, but actually we're going to start with the last verse of chapter 3, and this is the reason why, at least the one reason that's presented to us (coughs) as to why Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. Starting in chapter 3, verse 10, it says, Now when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Verse 4, or chapter 4, And that displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was still back in my own country? And that is why... I made haste to flee to Tarshish, because I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And so it wasn't the daunting task or it wasn't the danger of the task that was in front of him, but that which prompted Jonah to reject the Lord's call was that he knew that if he went there and preached a message of God's coming judgment, and the people responded to that message by repenting of their sin, Jonah knew that God would forgive them. And Jonah didn't want those people to be forgiven. Jonah had determined that the people of Nineveh did not deserve the mercy of God, nor that they should receive the mercy of God. And so Jonah didn't want to go. Now, before we judge Jonah too harshly, just imagine this scenario. Imagine if you were a Jewish person living during the time of World War II, and God called you, say, from New York City or from New Jersey, where you live now, whatever it might be, God called you to leave here and to go to Berlin and to preach to the Nazi uh, government and the Nazi soldiers and all of those individuals. Here you are, a Jew living in America, three, 4,000 miles away, and God call, calls you to go to the place that was the height of anti-Semitism. Well, we could imagine many of us, I can imagine many of us, we would spurn the call of God. I'm not doing that. I'm not going there. They don't deserve uh, to hear the message of God. And so Jonah didn't want to go. He wanted the people of Nineveh to be judged, not to be forgiven. And knowing God as well as he did, he knew that if those people repented, God would forgive them. And so he doesn't go. Instead, as we saw in our passage here, he goes down to find a ship and to go in a different direction altogether. Now, in most circumstances, that would be the end of the story. So I said earlier, typically, God calls a prophet, tells him what to do, the prophet goes and does it. That's the end of the story. Well, in the scenario of this particular book, God calls a prophet, uh, tells him what to do, that prophet says, no, I don't want to do that. That's the end of the story. Not the case. Here, what we see, and again, remember the two running themes throughout the book of uh, Jonah, the mercy of God, but also the sovereignty of God. And so with the sovereignty of God in mind, what we we begin to read the next couple of verses, God's not going to let Jonah just run away and go his own direction. Verse 4 says this, chapter 1, verse 4, it says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And then the mariners, then the sailors, were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship 
and he had laid down, and he was fast asleep. And so the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, go out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And so, though Jonah probably didn't realize this at the time, those words there in verse 4, those first three words, but the Lord, they are maybe perhaps the most beautiful words of all of Scripture, or the, at least the be- most beautiful thought of all of Scripture, but the Lord. Because but the Lord, it speaks to the fact that the Lord does not give up on his people. And I am sure glad that the Lord does not give up on his people, as I imagine many of you that are watching as well are really glad of that fact. But the Lord, the Lord does not give up on his people. And I'm not talking about Nineveh in this book, particularly where, again, the whole focus of the book is Jonah. The Lord does not give up on Jonah, his disobedient prophet, the disobedient prophet of the Lord. The Lord loved Jonah too much to leave him to his decision. And so what does the passage say? Well, verse 4 goes on to say that the Lord brought a storm. Jonah describes it as the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. We see in the next verse, or at the end of verse 4, that the, the storm was so severe that the ship threatened to break up. Jonah tells us that as well. That's how severe this particular storm was. We learn in verse 5 uh, that the mariners, they were so afraid because of this storm that each one of them began to cry out to their God uh, that he might come and that he might save them. And then we learn in verse 5 as well, later part of verse 5, that the storm gets so bad that the mariners abandoned, completely abandoned the whole mission of this trip, which was to transport cargo from one place to the other and get paid for that particular job. They completely abandoned the entire mission and any hope of getting paid by, as it says, hurling the cargo that was in the ship into the sea, into the ocean, so as to lighten their load. This is some storm. And so in response to Jonah's disobedience, God sends this storm. Now, that's not to say that every storm that we encounter in our lives is the direct result of some form of rebellion on our part. Sometimes bad things just happen because we're living in a fallen world. But it does indicate that in some cases, the storm may be directly sent by the Lord to deal with an area of rebellion in our lives or the lives of another person. And so it's interesting to look at the scripture, the same Lord that has the ability to calm the storm. And we love those passages that are found in the gospel When the Lord would stand up and he would say, peace, be still, and the wind and the waves obey him. But what we learn in our Bibles is the same Lord that has the ability to calm the storm also has the ability to cause the storm. And so God had given his command. Jonah had disobeyed that command. And now Jonah and all the others on this particular ship are going to suffer the consequences of that disobedience as God supernaturally intervenes to bring Jonah eventually to the place of obedience. Now, there's an important point that I want to notice there, and I hope we all do notice it. And that is this, that Jonah's rebellion and the consequences of that rebellion, you'll notice it directly impacts others as much as it impacts Jonah. 
And so every one of these mariners, every one of these sailors are impacted as much, if not more perhaps, than Jonah actually is. And those mariners, as far as God's call is concerned, they had done nothing wrong, and yet it was their ship and their lives that were now at risk alongside of Jonah. And I bring it up because oftentimes in our rebellion, we think things, or maybe we even say these things, where we'll say, well, look, it's my life. What I decide to do is not hurting anybody or something like that. And in fact, what we discover as we look at this situation or plenty of other anecdotes that we could bring to the equation, what we discover is that just the opposite is the case. That because of Jonah's sin, innocent sailors were now on the verge of drowning. And so what do those innocent sailors do? We read in verse 5, well, they cry out to their God, of course. It says, then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. I'm sure you've heard the expression that there are no atheists in foxholes. Well, apparently there are no atheists in tempest storms either. And so each one of these men, they begin to cry out to their God. And sadly, we know that the only one on that ship, Jonah, whose God had any power to actually do anything about this particular storm, sadly, the only one who had the ability to cry out to that God it says, was fast asleep down in the deeper parts of the boat. He was fast asleep, it says, in verse 5, the end of verse 5. Now, the Bible, the Psalms in particular, it point out, it points out, I should say, that sometimes the believer can rest in the midst of storms because of the peace that we have in our relationship with the Lord. And so storms come, panics come, pandemics come, economies completely crash, And here you are as a Christian, and you're able to have peace in the midst of that circumstance. Sometimes that's because of your relationship with the Lord. Again, the Psalms point this out, Psalm 127. It says, it's in vain that you rise up early, go to late, and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, because the Lord gives to his beloved, (coughs) the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. And sometimes the Lord does that, based on the peace that we can have in our relationship with him. That, however, is not what's going on in this circumstance. And so sometimes we can rest amidst life's storms because we're at peace with God and in our relationship with God. Other times, however, the sleep is actually the result of the emotional and spiritual toil, or toll, I should say, uh, and the draining process of living in rebellion against God and his commands. It's exhausting. And that's the sleep that Jonah is now experiencing. Again, there's one man aboard this ship that actually had a relationship with the true God who could actually do something about this particular storm, and he is fast asleep in the depths of that ship. And so willing to try anything, the captain now in our story, he insists that every man begin to call upon every one of their gods or any gods that they had ever heard of in hopes that one of those gods might hear and stop the storm and keep them from perishing in the storm. And so imagine his dismay as this captain is running from room to room and he's, he's trying to, to alert every single person and telling them what to do. Imagine his dismay as he runs to the portion of the ship where he finds Jonah and he comes across Jonah fast asleep. You almost get, in the next verse, sort of a sense of his exasperation, where he says, what do you mean, you sleeper? What are you doing, sleeping? 
I think that phrase, what do you mean, you sleeper? I think it's a Bible verse that many of us parents have quoted many times to our teenagers about five minutes before the bus is about to wake, uh, to arrive, and they're still not awake. What do you mean, you sleeper? He says essentially this. He says, get up, call upon your God. Maybe he will save us. Perhaps he'll save us. How ironic here, it must have been to Jonah to be instructed by these pagan individuals, this pagan captain, to call upon his God, considering the very reason why he is on this ship is to get away from his God. And so this captain says, what are you doing sleeping? Get up, call upon your God, perhaps he will save us. Now, apparently the captain gave those instructions, and then he quickly takes off to to some other rooms to give other people instructions as well. Because we read in verse 7 here, that sort of the crew comes up with the next plan here. And so they've they've been trying everything. They tried lightening the load. That was one of their plans. They tried crying to their gods. Uh, Maybe one of them will save us. That was their plans. Well, now their next plan, verse 7 tells us, is they're going to cast lots to determine on whose account this evil has come upon them. Let's read it. It says in verse 7, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us, And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And so now these men here, and this scenario that they're going through, you got to remind yourself, uh, remember, remind yourself that these were no doubt all seasoned mariners. Maybe not every single one of them, maybe one was the new guy, but this was a crew of people that have done this sort of thing before. They had been through storms before. They knew how to kind of deal with the worst of those storms, throw over the cargo and things like that. These guys have been through this sort of thing before, but there's something different about this storm. There's something different about sort of the ferocity of this storm that causes them to realize that there's a supernatural involvement in this particular one. They describe it as an evil, uh, they say there, on account of, on whose account this evil has come against us. Something supernatural is going on. Somebody has done something to cause the gods, as you might hear them saying, to be angry with us. And so what do they do? They cast lots, and of course the lot falls on Jonah. And I can't help but think that Jonah, in that moment, he just sort of closed his eyes and he shook his head, you know, left and right, and he thought to himself, of course the lot is going to fall on me. And it did. The, The lot fell on Jonah And of course, the people then, the sailors then, they begin to respond by giving Jonah the third degree. What's your name, they say. Where are you? you, What's your job? Where do you come from? Why are you here? They begin to ask him all these questions there in verse 8. The real question that they're asking, it's not recorded for us, but the real question that they're asking is, what did you do that we are suffering in this particular way at this particular time? And Jonah then, he goes on and he begins to answer it. And he says, look, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. And I can't help but read, and I've jotted it in my notes. Really? That's what you're going with? He says, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. He doesn't seem to be fearing the Lord. And he says, I fear the one who made the sea and the dry land. Now, according to verse 10, he'll go on to then explain the commissioning that God gave to him and how he rebelled against that commission by getting onto this ship and getting as far away from Nineveh as possible. Notice what it says in verse 10. It says that the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord 
because he had told them he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah lays it all out there. God wanted me to do this. I don't want to do this. And so I got on a ship to go uh, to as far away as possible from that. He was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Jonah thought <coughs> he could escape God's presence and that he could avoid doing his will by getting on a ship full of a bunch of heathen men and setting sail to the other side of the earth. And interesting, what Jonah discovered as he attempted to do those things was that it was those very heathens that would be the ones that were calling him out for his sin. Look again in verse 10. They say to him, what is this you have done? How could you have disobeyed your God in that particular way and brought all this difficulty on us? Jonah discovered what so many of us, I imagine, have discovered in our walks with the Lord as well, and that is that we can be sure of this, that our sin, it will find us out. And so we think that we can run from it. We think that we can hide from it. But at one time or another, it's going to come to light. And seeing that this is all Jonah's fault, they, these men, they say to him, look, you've sinned. What is it that we should do to you to stop this storm? Pretty much they say, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? And you'll notice in verse 11, they say this as the storm is getting even worse and worse and worse than it had already been, because it goes on to say, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Now, Jonah, I should say, he responds and he says, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. He says, because I know that it's because of me that this great tempest has come, up, come upon us. Now, Jonah could have said, turn the boat around, take me back to Joppa so I can begin my trip to Nineveh and do what God told me to do. Instead, what he says is, hurl me into the sea. Now, I have to ask the question, why? And again, we, we don't necessarily know. It doesn't come out specifically and tell us. We could say he's saying, hurl me into the sea. Maybe that's out of compassion for the mariners. Maybe he's thinking, look, my problems shouldn't be their problem. So just throw me overboard and get rid of me. I think it's more likely that Jonah has a death wish. And so I think it's more likely that what Jonah is communicating here is something like this. Look, throw me out here in the middle of this sea so that I can die. Because at least I won't have to go to Nineveh and preach to those wicked people. Jonah was like many of us when we are, when we sin. And so instead of stopping, kind of thinking clearly about what it is that we have gotten ourselves into, what it is that we are doing, and the way in which God is responding to those decisions, instead of stopping and dealing with it and repenting of it, we dig our heels in, so to speak. We harden our hearts even more. And by being asked to be thrown into the sea, it seems to me what Jonah is saying is this, I would rather die than do God's will. So throw me overboard. Interesting, in verse 13, you see that the, the sailors are like, no, we're not going to do that. We don't throw people overboard. Uh, it says, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Notice the irony of the situation here. The sailors who are heathens, unbelievers, 
are unwilling that Jonah, who's just one man, should perish despite his guilt. They're unwilling that that should be the case. But Jonah, who's a prophet of God, was totally fine with hundreds of thousands of people perishing. And again, it's one more indicator of the hardness of heart that had set in into Jonah's life here. And so it seems the sailors are, are going to try everything they possibly can. We're not going to throw you overboard. We're going to do everything we can. They row harder and harder and harder because they want to save themselves and Jonah. But even those efforts fall short. As again, it says, the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And so finally, after having made every effort to save their lives without having to sacrifice Jonah, it says they call out to the Lord, the Lord, capital L, they ask him for his mercy for doing what they're about to do, and they hurl Jonah into the raging sea. Verse 14 says, therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and let us uh, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Verse 15, and so they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its ragings. Two important things I see here. Number one, these heathens who previously called out to a, a host of small g gods are now calling out to the Lord himself, capital G if you will. You'll see that there in verse 14. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. Secondly, take notice of this. It says that no sooner did they throw Jonah into the sea, and then it goes on to say that the sea ceased from its raging. And so it seems that they had found the cause of their problem. It was indeed Jonah. And the immediate end of this storm, it proves that Jonah's God was real, and it proves that Jonah's resistance to this God was the cause of their problem. Now, you would think, as far as the sailors are concerned, that now they would be completely set at ease. The, the waves and the wind and all of those things have died down, and the boat is just out simply there uh, in the middle of the sea, and everything is great, and you would think they'd be completely at ease. Their problem has been solved. Notice, though, in actuality, what this did was it shifted their fear from the storm to the God that had the supernatural control over the storm. And so we see in verse 16, it says, and then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered their sacrifice to the Lord and they made their vows. The, the sailors moved from fearing the storm to fearing the Lord. And thus in logical response to that fear, they proceeded to sacrifice to the Lord. They proceeded to make vows to the Lord. Notice this. The vows of the sailors came after they were delivered from the storm. Everyone makes vows in the midst of the storm. Everyone says, God, if you get me out of this storm, I promise I'll quit my job and I'll become a missionary on a foreign field. Or maybe this one's a little more common to you. God, if you let me get off from this ticket, I promise I'll never speed again down the highway. We, we make these vows to the Lord when we're in trouble. Here, though, these particular folks, they make their vow to the Lord when all the trouble has ceased, when it is all gone, the storm is over. That's when they make their vows, after the storm has ceased. And it's based on that reality. It's based on the fact that they call out to the Lord with a capital L 
that many commentators believe that these sailors actually came to a true faith in God as a result of all of these circumstances that they had just undergone. And if that's the case, and I think it is, if that's the case, that means in a very ironic way, God is already turning pagan hearts unto himself through Jonah, in spite of the fact that Jonah rejected God's call. Again, God will accomplish his purposes in and through our lives one way or the other. And Jonah has now, if you will, he's learned that lesson the hard way. Make sure you come back next week. We're going to see just how hard of a way that Jonah has to go through. But what we learn is through this hard way, God is going to accomplish his purposes one way or the other in Jonah's life or through Jonah's life. And so because of the hardness of Jonah's heart toward the people of Nineveh, Jonah is going to learn the lesson through, very, through much difficulty. God's desire for you and I is that we would learn his lessons by his gentle leading, like Psalm 23 teaches us, not through much difficulty. It's been said, a wise man learns from his mistakes, but a wiser man learns from the mistakes of others. And you and I, we would do well throughout our study of the book of Jonah, the next three weeks or so in the book of Jonah, we would do well to learn lessons for ourselves from the mistakes he made rather than having to learn those same lessons from mistakes that we would go on to make. And so with that, we're going to actually stop there. I know there's one more verse in chapter 1, but I think it goes with chapter 2 a little bit better. And so with that, we're going to close our time in the book of Jonah this morning. And as we do, I want to remind you just of a few things that we considered this morning. Number one is this, our sin, Jonah's sin was the hardness of our hearts. And that's something as Christians, we really struggle with. People hurt us, people frustrate us, people anger us, people do things differently than the way you might want to do those things. And we can get embittered toward those individuals. Our sin, our hardness of hearts, our acts of rebellion, all of those things have consequences in our lives and in the lives of other people that are around us. That's a lesson we need to learn so that it drives home this point, guard your heart. Keep your heart from going to the place of hardness or bitterness. That's the first thing that we see here from our study of chapter one. Second thing that we see is this. We are reminded of the wonderful truth of scripture that our God is a merciful God and that he delights to show mercy even to those that we might think are undeserving of mercy. Let me remind you of a very important truth in the scripture. No one is deserving of mercy. And so when we determine that certain people are not worthy of mercy, we no longer have the heart of the Lord. Because as we are learning here, our God is a merciful God who delights to show mercy. The scripture says this, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. He delights to show mercy. And the third thing that we learn in our study of this first chapter of the book is this, and that is that as believers, as recipients of God's mercy, we have to be on guard against the hardening of our hearts, which cause us to determine that some people are worthy of God's mercy, me, and other people are not worthy of God's mercy, them. That was Jonah's problem in this book. Jonah's convinced that the people of Nineveh do not deserve 
the mercy of God. And it's just an indicator that he himself has forgotten that he himself is uh, in need of the mercy of God. And so with that, we're going to call to a close our time together in the first chapter of the book of Jonah. I encourage you to read ahead. It's a relatively small book. It's only about 10 or 15 verses in every chapter. So go ahead and read through the whole book a couple of times this week, perhaps. And when we come back together again, we'll, we'll spend our time looking at the second chapter of what God does with this disobedient prophet. And again, we'll look at his life, hoping to learn from his mistakes so that we don't make them ourselves. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we are, uh, we're challenged a bit this morning. I think I am uh, challenged a bit. Because I know the tendency of my heart to sort of want to weigh what it is you're calling me to do, to, do, to determine if I think uh, that's an appropriate thing to do or if that's something I feel like getting involved in or whatever it may be. And here is this guy, Jonah, a prophet of the Lord, a, a man in tune with the voice of the Lord, the ability to hear the voice of the Lord and to receive a commissioning. And he decides in rebellion to go the completely opposite direction. His heart, Lord, it becomes clear. We see it. You're revealing it to us. His heart is hardening over toward others and even toward you. And Father, we don't want that for ourselves. You know our tendency. You even know the, the division of our, our nation, our communities, churches even, over some of the things that are going on in our society. I think this election primarily. And how easy it is for us to become frustrated toward others and embittered toward others and angry toward others. But we want to give that all over to you. We want to have your heart in every circumstance that we undergo and the people that we interact with. We want to be your conduits of grace and mercy. But we want to go to those people that perhaps we most despise in the flesh and we want to communicate to them the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they may come to the place of not having to be judged for their sin because they look to Jesus Christ who's been judged for their sin. Use us in that. Use your word, Lord, this week, this whole week as we consider these things and meditate on these things. Use your word to dig down into the deep places of our hearts and to root out some of these areas that we're struggling with because we're convinced that will be better off for you having done so. And so bless your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close out our time uh, with, a, with a, another worship song or two, and, and I just want to encourage you, use that time. Uh, you don't even have to sing the song necessarily, but just use that time as an opportunity to really just go before the Lord in prayer. And if you'd like to reach out to us in any way, you know how to do so. You can leave a comment in the section there or you can send us an email or call the church office. We do want to be in, interacting with you. We want to be caring for you, however you might feel you have needs. And so don't hesitate to reach out to us. Our email address is connecting at ccmercer.com. God bless you. Thank you for being here. Let's finish up our time together by worshiping the Lord.